Welcome to another episode of Chai with the Pre-Med Guys, where we bring forth current and future healthcare professionals to talk about everything medicine and beyond with your hosts, myself, Saeed, and my dear friend, Wally. Wally and I made this podcast to showcase what goes into making an individual that lives and breathes medicine and how to prepare ourselves for the long journey to medicine. In this special episode, we are hosting a very special guest. Coming all the way from West Coast, California, we are joined today by Dr. Pham, an attending neurosurgeon by day, expert journaler by night. And Dr. Pham, I believe you're a semi-professional carpenter nowadays in between. <laughs> so Dr. Pham went to UCLA for his undergrad studies, later attended Northwestern School of Medicine. Dr. Pham completed his residency at USC, University of Southern California, and completed a fellowship at Columbia University. Listeners, I know Dr. Pham might already sound very enticing to you, so you can get to know more about Dr. Pham on his Instagram, at Martin Pham, MD. Dr. Pham, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. We're very, very excited to get to know more about you and learn a lot from you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for, for the invitation and for the introduction. It's something um, you know, I'm very excited to, to participate in, and especially if it, uh, it gives your, your audience and listeners um, a glimpse, at least into my own experience so far in, in this really incredible journey. Absolutely. So, Dr. Pham, before we get to know more about your life as a neurosurgeon, we just like to know who you are as a person. And for that purpose, we'll be asking some quick questions just to break the ice. Um, don't feel the need to answer too in-depth, as this is just to get things rolling. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Pham, first question. What is your favorite food? <laughs> my, my favorite food, um, my, my go-to is actually Japanese cuisine. I, I love sushi i love sashimi so you know if i had to eat something you know every single day for the rest of my life it'd probably be salmon sashimi next question what is the most reckless thing you've done um i don't know if i can say that on a recorded (laughs) podcast that's broadcasted across to audiences but i'll (laughs) i'll say just because i'm responsible now doesn't mean i've always been you know very responsible or completely uh you know under the auspices of the law but um you know i i I have done quite a few reckless things that maybe I can share over a closed door session sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Dr. Faye, I'm now going back to a PG-13 question, I'd say. Um, What's your your favorite book? Uh, Gosh, you know, my my favorite book, um, I I grew up reading a lot, um, so I I do have a lot of them, but really, most recently, one of my most favorite books is um, probably Complications by Tul Gawande. Um, I read that book in medical school, so if you look at the published date, it's, it's probably over a decade old now, but Atul Gawande is a phenomenal writer. And he really showed me that, especially when I began my interest in surgery, it broadened my definition of surgeons. Um, and it really captured my, uh, both my imagination and my, um, you know, desire and interest in surgery. So it, it still remains one of my, my favorite books. Dr. Pham, if you didn't become a physician, what would you want to do for the rest of your life? You know, I, um, I've thought of a, a variety of things over time. Um, I mean, if you ask me now, I'd probably become a woodworker, mostly because it's a, a newfound okay. hobby. Uh, if you asked me that in college when I was applying to medical school, I probably would have answered a, uh, you know, say like a professor or a teacher, sort of a natural segue. If you had asked me that in medical school, I probably would have done something like an astronaut, right? Because it sounds really cool, although my, my vision is terrible and um, you know, I'm not afraid of heights, but uh, you know, shooting off into the atmosphere, if I had to do it, would be kind of a scary thing. 
but no, I think I, I would I would have definitely remained in some sort of educational or scientific capacity. Great, great. Uh, Dr. Pham, what is your favorite quote that has been either said to you or you've seen in a movie or anything like that? Um, you know, actually, uh, probably um, one of my most favorite quotes is, it's from Gattaca. And, um, you know, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it's about, you know, genetically um, engineered populations compared to, you know, naturally born raised ones. And there's a scene in the movie where um, there's two people who are swimming and racing and, and one of them beats the, the genetically perfect clone. And the, the quote essentially goes that, um, you know, he was asking, how did you do it? How did you do this? You're supposed to be quad or inferior. And his response was that he didn't save anything for the swim back, right? And so save nothing for the swim back is, is sort of encompassing a lot of the ambition, motivation, dedication that at least for me in medical school um, helped push me through some of the worst parts and, and even in residency and beyond. And, you know, as, as you'll find on my Instagram, I have a lot of different quotes for, um, you know, fitness and there are a lot of great medical quotes, but I think personally that, that struck um, a very strong chord in my life during a, a really tough time in medical school. Right. Dr. Pham, what is your go-to song for surgery, if there is any? Um, I, I don't have a go-to song. I, you know, I use Spotify a lot and gosh, the, the, the song bank in Spotify is like 10 or 20 or 30 million. I, um, I cycle through playlists pretty often. You know, I have my Discover Weekly on and New Music Friday and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think for me, um, there are a variety of songs that I, I play in the operating room. So I do play music in the operating room. Um, for the most part, it's pretty, um, it's pretty pop or current, you know, it's not, it's nothing like uh, death metal or, or anything like that, but <laughs> I think pretty mainstream for the most part. Yeah. I see. I see Dr. Pham. Um, what will be your, or what is your favorite movie? Um, my favorite movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think to, to the movies that I that I had on on DVD um, and uh, you know I I I wish I could say something different you know um, but I can't get I, I can't get it out of my head anymore when I was when I was little for some reason I I, lo I really loved the movie called Love Potion Number Nine with Sandra Bullock and and I forgot the the actor's name again now but. I remember watching it like in middle school and, and then someone bought me the actual tape, you know, back when we had DHS. So it, it's really dated. It's like an eighties movie, maybe even nineties, but um, you know, for some reason that's kind of just stuck in my mind as a, as a funny thing. So Dr. Pham, this isn't really a question, but we just both really like your tattoos. Um, you know, we see them on Instagram and whatnot. Um, and they're, they're very interesting. So like, just wanted to say that and maybe if there's a story behind that or anything. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks. You know, I, um, you know, I think sometimes the question comes up, uh, you know, especially with healthcare and, and professionalism and, you know, in, in our day and age, nowadays, tattoos are, are viewed as just a personal expression. Um, whereas before they were more of some affiliation of some kind. So um, I, I say that if, if there's anyone out there who's considering it or has it or, or wants to do it, um, just go ahead and do it. Uh, especially in med school and later residency, physicianhood, um, people will care much, much more about how you treat people and how you take care of them than, than anything that's on your skin. Well, we definitely think they're awesome. Uh, but uh, with that, that's the end of our little quick icebreaker question session. And now we can go into the real stuff. Say, do you want to start? 
Absolutely. So Dr. Pham, um, you have uh, been an attending physician for uh, quite some time now, uh, recently. And um, I just actually wanted to ask you, why did you want to become a physician in the first place? Because I believe that we're asked that question all the time. And I don't know if you've been asked this question more recently, but uh, why did you want to become a physician? And how was your undergrad journey to med school? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I remember uh, uh, when I was as a, you know, when I was a pre-med, I used to worry about my answer, right, which is a truthful answer. But when people would ask me, I would, I would sort of worry if it was special enough, if, you know, it was poignant enough. Um, the truth really is, is I, I chose medicine because in middle school and high school, I really liked science. You know, I, I love the, the biological sciences the most of the three. Um, and in high school, when I volunteered at a hospital, I actually found that medicine was a way to use that love of science to help people directly, right? One-on-one, face-to-face. And as opposed to becoming a scientist where you can help with the dissemination of knowledge and help populations and help um, push for technology, medicine was a way to use biological sciences to help people um, directly with your knowledge. And um, for me, that was a very special thing. You know, I remember very um, specific experiences volunteering in the hospital and, and seeing that delivery of care. And um, that was really what inspired me to go into medicine. There was no other field in, in my head that really captured that. You know, some people go into medicine because they want to help people save lives and, you know, firefighters save lives and police officers and military save lives and, um, you know, doctors save lives too. And I think it's just the way that we're able to do it um, was something that really spoke to me and, and why I chose medicine. I see. Absolutely. I see. Perfect. So just uh, speaking of undergrad years, I wanted to ask Dr. Pham, what's one trait you developed or maybe an activity you were involved in during your undergrad years that's sort of stuck with you throughout your career and maybe even made you a better physician? Um, I would say that, you know, I've, I've always been, I think, a pretty um, diligent, I don't know, I mean, I guess, uh, if anything, I've always been very neat and organized and um, diligent in terms of studies and especially in undergrad, you know, definitely pursue your own hobbies. I pursued my own hobbies. I hung out with friends. I, you know, saw family and, and had an outside life. But when it comes to your, your academic study load, um, finding the best way to study or take exams or understand the material is always going to be the, the benchmark and, and um, how you're compared, right, especially to your peers. So for me, being neat and organized and understanding that was, was helpful. Um, and that's something that's remained, you know, especially in medical school. Um, a, a common question is how much harder is medical school than pre-med and undergrad? And my estimation is probably at least four times the material. So when you think of how much you have to learn now, that's going to be about four times the material all in medicine, right? So instead of poli-sci and bio and, you know, historical studies, it's now all anatomy, physiology of the human body. So I think being able to organize yourself and at least understand how you uh, assimilate material is always going to be key and something that I, I picked up essentially from undergrad. I see. I see. That's perfect. Um, Dr. Fan, we, when we like, you know, um, bring on, ho- um, bring on our guests, uh, we just uh, do like a, I guess, like a thorough background search and everything like that to know more about you. And uh, I believe uh, one of the podcasts you did, it, I think it was like a day, um, 
it was like life and death um, and talking to a neurosurgeon. And in that podcast, you mentioned how different your undergrad career was essentially with in regards to medicine. And um, if you'd like to expand more on that, and I just wanted to ask you that a lot of people will look at your undergrad career and say that, oh, that's, that's actually very different. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, you, you definitely did do your research. I, I, uh, I believe the podcast you're referring to is uh, Surviving Medicine back in 2018. And it was, I think it was the very first one um, I did with uh, Frank uh, Cusimano, I think. And, um, and that's true. So, um, you know, Saeed, what you're referring to is in, in undergrad, you know, I knew that I wanted to be, I, I knew I wanted to go to medical school. So for your listeners who aren't familiar, I, I wanted to go to medical school when I was an undergrad, but I didn't know the path. My, um, my mother never graduated college, so I came from a single parent home. Um, there's no one in my family who's a physician. And I was fairly oblivious to things. You know, I, I, I made it to college, it seemed great. Um, but I sort of used that opportunity to find myself like, like most people do. Um, in college, I pursued a lot of hobbies. I, um, I played pool. I, uh, you know, I had a, a, an eBay business at the time. I, I bought my own car. Um, that I then, you know, took to the track and, you know, like, like most college students, it was a very diversified experience, but I also set aside, you know, I didn't attend my pre-med clubs. I didn't, um, look into how you actually get into medical school, uh, as, as a funny enough story as it is now, I didn't know what the MCAT was until literally my third year. So my upper division classes. Um, it's not what I would recommend, especially if you know you're going into medicine, but um, it goes to show that my my path in in undergrad was much more, you know, free uh, freewheeling and, and laissez-faire. Um, I did take a gap year, I think, which goes to show that with all those types of directions, um, it took me one year to, you know, refocus them to show my commitment to medicine. And then in reference to what you said, um, my medical school track was much more focused, right? By the time I went to medical school, I realized how lucky I was to have um, been accepted and matriculated despite my, you know, unfocused undergrad. And I think in medical school, realizing um, that not everything can be brute forced, whether through your grades or whether through sheer luck, in medical school, in my first year, I, I knew at that time that neurosurgery was probably going to be my profession of choice. And then I looked up everything, right? So I knew what the step one was. I knew what, um, you know, the expectations were. I found myself a mentor. I understood that research was very important. I understood where all the, the um, you know, most coveted training programs were. I understood what residency was. I knew what, you know, the number of years for surgical programs. So for me personally, it was a 180 in terms of my sense of responsibility in terms of my own future. So, you know, for, for those of you who are listening, who took a non-traditional path, as you know, there's no perfect path into medicine at all, whether that's through your background, whether that's through your focus, whether you've had a career beforehand or not. Um, and, you know, I can attest to, to some part of that as well. Right. Right. Definitely. Each student's journey to medicine, to med school, to anywhere beyond is definitely their own. But just to all students listening who might be considering neurosurgery but are swayed away by the sheer length of the field's residency, 
What would you tell them to make their decision, be it for or against the field, a bit easier? And maybe what was your own journey to choosing neurosurgery as a medical student? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a very important one and an important consideration. Um, the first thing that when people are interested in neurosurgery, whether they're interested as a, as a pre-med or, an under, uh, or as a, in medical school, um, the first thing they consider is the time, right? And in brief, right, it's four years undergrad, plus minus gap years, four years of medical school, plus minus a year or two if you take a year off. If you do a PhD, that's four additional years. It's seven years of residency, and then you practice, right? So the earliest you'll, you will become a, an independent neurosurgeon is in your 30s. Now, that being said, you know, the thing that I say is that the time passes by anyway, right? Um, whether you become something else, whether you're in another career, you know, look at what your friends are doing who are not in medicine, right? They, they're still living their lives and time passes. So if you uh, really want to become a neurosurgeon, the time that's passing is all part of that training, right? Unlike, say, high school, where you have to, quote unquote, go through four years to get into college and it's a finish line, for neurosurgery, every single one of those years, whether it's in medical school or residency, it's money in the bank for you to become a neurosurgeon, right? It's not that one day you graduate and you're a neurosurgeon with a capital N. I'm a neurosurgeon today because of seven years and 10 years and 12 years of all of my, not just neurosurgical training, but my medical training in medical school. So I would say that don't let the time de deter you. The people who go into neurosurgery um, naturally are self-selected. And typically they're people who have decided there's nothing else that they could imagine doing. And that typically is, is also what it takes as well, because for me, if there's nothing else that I can imagine myself doing, which is what the case was, that means there's no other choice, right? It's either go through the path or do something else. And for me, doing something else wasn't an option. So, um, you know, to become president of the United States, you have to go into politics, become a senator or do whatever it is. And all of it is a journey to get there. Um, becoming a neurosurgeon is no different um, in that analogy. I see. I see. That's, that's very important to understand that um, we need to understand that the journey to medicine is very long. And while it might be like, uh, for some people, it might be like, you know, like a, a sighing type of moment. It's like, oh man, I, I have to spend all this time like residency. When am I going to become a doctor? When am I going to get married and stuff like that? Like those are like other stuff that you think about. But honestly, for me, it's just, you know, you, it's, thank God it's that long. Like it, it's given, the program has given me all this time to perfect my actions and, you know, perfect my niche to like treat the patient. That's what my job is. And that's why I went into this field. And Dr. Fam, you mentioned that um, the reason where, why you are here today and how you did like a full 180 in medical school and how you got a mentor that played like a really big part to it. So I just wanted to know how having a mentor and how did the mentor really guide you to uh, become the neurosurgeon you are today? And how did they basically shape the field of uh, medicine for you, like the view that you have currently right now? Yeah, I, I, I can definitely answer that in, in hopefully two different ways. Um, the first is a, a practical way. You know, um, every field of medicine is different with regards to what um, departments look for and what training programs look for. And so finding a mentor in medical school for neurosurgery helped from a practical sense, because I 
literally had a neurosurgeon who could tell me what the application process is like, right? So when you apply from college, I'm sorry, when you apply from high school to college, there is a certain process and things that people look for. Likewise, when you're pre-med and then you go to medical school, once in medical school, it becomes a lot more diverse depending on the, the field that you go into. And you only have one shot, right? And you can be the smartest person and the best person, the most you know, empathetic person, the most technically skilled person. But if you don't go through the right application process, you won't be found. And I think finding a mentor was important for that once in a lifetime chance to apply so that I don't shoot myself in the foot inadvertently or I don't miss some opportunity. Um, the second way to answer that in terms of shaping my view is I, I was very fortunate enough to have found a mentor um, in medical school at Northwestern who was not just a phenomenal neurosurgeon, but just a phenomenal physician, right? I think all of us have certain stereotypes, whether true or partially true or not, of certain types of physicians and neurosurgeons were one of them. And yet the mentor that I had, um, he was just a normal guy. And he shaped my view that at least for neurosurgery and at least for him, there's nothing special, uh, you know, quote unquote, about being a neurosurgeon. He was just a good person who is also a physician who trained in how to do brain and spine surgery. And it was the reverse, right? So he wasn't a neurosurgeon first and deserved all the, you know, respect because of that. He was a good person first. And because of that, um, that's why people liked him. That's why I, I, I mean, liked him incredibly so. Um, you know, in addition to that type of philosophy that he had for his patients, he was extremely dedicated to the people behind him. You know, he introduced me to the idea when I was a very impressionable first-year medical student, right? When, when you're a first-year medical student, I mean, you are wide-eyed, right? Very impressionable. Every single thing um, can make or break anything that you do, you know, every single compliment, criticism. I mean, you're, you're entering the field of medicine, you get your white coat, you're, you're going to be a physician one day. It's, it's a very big deal. And I remember I was shadowing him in my first few months and he said it almost offhand, but I think I asked him something to the effect of why did you choose to be in academia? Why did you choose to stay at a university? And he felt a dedication to teaching. And I remember he shared a quote with me that he said that, you know, the people that come after you should be better than you, right? Especially if they have the benefit of the skill and knowledge that you are passing along. So there's, there's no ego in being the best forever. The whole point is to make those behind you better than you, especially if they have the benefit of what you're passing down to them. And that philosophy um, from a first-year medical student has remained with me essentially 15 years later because as a medical student, as a senior medical student, I tried to pass down what I learned to the early medical students in applying into neurosurgery. When I was a resident, right, I tried to pass that down to medical students. When I was a senior resident in chief, I tried to pass that down to the early residents. And then now as an attending, the whole purpose is to make those behind you better. And I can trace that seed um, all the way back to him. You know, and similarly, the reason why I'm on this podcast and the reason why you know, I share some of my, my journey is so that those behind me can hopefully have something that I didn't have and can make theirs even better for, um, you know, for the field that I'm, I'm leaving behind.
Absolutely, Dr. Fem. I have to completely agree with you. Wally is just one year senior of me, and my life as a undergraduate student has been smooth sailing to him, like because of him. So, like credits where credit is due. Obviously, thank you, Wally, for that. And honestly, the reason why we started this podcast is we believe that the stuff we learn from med students and physicians while before we started this podcast, we cannot gatekeep those. Like we cannot gatekeep these facts, these advices that we have found. And essentially, we also wanted to make the lives of the pre-meds that are going to come through and also even the high school kids who are going to go through college, become a pre-med and hopefully like going to med school, make their lives better. So thank you, Dr. Pham, for, um, you know, your dedication and commitment, because honestly, the reason why we are succeeding right now is because of people like you, the medical community is so kind and so passionate to basically pass on the torch. It just makes the field continuously grow. And I feel like this, this community is very unique for that. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words and, and you're very welcome. Definitely. The people that come after you should be better than you. I just brought that down a little bit. Definitely going to remember that. And um, I think the place where that bettering, that improvement happens is during your training. And, and we all hear about the terrors, terrors of, um, surgical residency, and especially neurosurgical residency. Um, in fact, I believe on top of all its um, uh, trials and all the tough challenges you face, I think a lot of programs also encourage residents to conduct research along their surgical training, so I might be wrong there. But uh, I was just wondering if you could talk us through your time as a resident, um, the challenges you faced, and maybe how you got through them. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll try my best to, to put it in a nutshell. It's, it's, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be hard to encompass what it's like for seven years um, of, of what it's like essentially to go from a student to a neurosurgeon, right? Because, you know, even the first six months, there's this realization and acceptance that you are an actual physician, right? You have, um, you know, a certain amount of ability to affect patient care directly through what you do or don't do. And then from that transition, it goes to becoming a physician to becoming a surgeon, right? So opening someone up and, and the responsibility of knowing what you're doing and especially the trust that people put in you that you're doing the right thing um, and you're doing it as best you can and you're doing it well. Um, I would say that to, to address some of the, the, the parts of the question, you know, the quote-unquote terrors of, of neurosurgical training and neurosurgical residency. Um, Part of that can be just the, the rigors of it. So surgical training, um, you know, all residency training is hard, right? I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that one is, is quote unquote harder than the other. Um, I will say that neurosurgery is, is longer. Um, there, are, there are expectations of, um, of neurosurgeons that may not be there for other residencies that um, maybe are not life or death or maybe are not as acute. Um, or maybe you're not as long, right? Um, but I, I'll say that all residency is hard. Um, I can speak specifically to neurosurgical residency though, and it would be similar to say um, boot camp or military training or training to become a Navy SEAL, right? I, I hear it's very, very hard, um, but it is a, a necessary part to train you to become what the end product is. Um, neurosurgery residency, it is hard, it is long, there are days and weeks where um, things are difficult, both physically or um, emotionally or personally, whether that's 
because you have to deal with things in your own life because life still goes on or because um, a patient is worse because of you, right? Because of what you did or didn't do because of what you didn't know and should have known. Um, it can also be hard because of who your uh, instructors are, right? Instructors in neurosurgery are also just people. And I would like to think that every university in the country who has a training program is filled with good and kind and patient neurosurgeons, but that's unfortunately not the case. So neurosurgery is hard in and of itself. It can be harder if your instructors and mentors are not invested and kind, right? And unfortunately, that's not the case across the country. Um, so, you know, the terrors that you hear, I think, are true to some extent. I would like to think that they're also much less common when you take the opportunities, um, you know, in, in the nation. Um, I, again, I was very fortunate enough, to, having trained at USC, to have phenomenal mentors and um, instructors. And I think the majority of um, places across the country are very, very similar to that. In terms of research, um, research is certainly encouraged in neurosurgery. Uh, like medical school, um, residency is by definition at an academic place. An academic place um, by its mission is to try to further the field, right? So in neurosurgery, and it'll depend on the place you go to, some places are more, um, uh, have higher expectations with regards to research. And by research, it can be anything from, you know, lab research, um, engineering research, bench research. It can be clinical research, right? Describing techniques um, in surgery or describing your patient outcomes. The idea, and again, this was impressed upon me when I was at USC, the idea is to give back. So in, in undergrad and med school, you give back by reaching to the people behind you and mentoring them and telling them about your path. In neurosurgery and medical fields, giving back is by telling the world what you're doing so that other surgeons and other specialists can understand how to do it or your experience so that they don't either make the same mistakes or so that they can help people in different parts of the country. That's what research is, right? And so at USC, research was not required, but it was something that um, I think was encouraged and something that was fostered if you had that desire. Um, not everyone who exited out of USC became a researcher, right? There are some people who didn't even go into university practice, and that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, going into the type of practice you go into is a very personal decision based off of your goals in life and where you are um, in terms of what you want to do. But it definitely fostered it, you know, and, and the very reason why um, I'm at an academic center now is because I still have that desire. I personally, for me, um, being in neurosurgery is more than, there's something greater than just doing surgery one after another in people that I want to help. Certainly I'm very happy to help them and I'm, I'm changing lives and it's a very special thing. But for me, there's something greater than that. And by greater, I mean, there's something bigger. There's a bigger picture. And whether that's by, um, passing along my knowledge and techniques to the surgical residents here so they can become better. Whether it's, you know, as you've seen, I'm sure, on, on some of the things I post, um, the description of, of newer techniques in surgery and newer technologies to make surgery better and safer. Um, that is what research is about for me. 
and um, something that I something I gained from residency that I still carry to me now uh, as an attending. I see. I see. That's perfect. Um, so I'm just going to like harken back to your the background research that we did and going back to the surviving medicine podcast that you did in 2018. Um, there was this one part of the podcast where you were basically describing your life as a resident and it was like, oh, like one day I am a resident and the other day I am an attending. Like it was just a very good transition. And I believe like your program really, really um, nailed that through and helped you transition well. So I just wanted to know that how did your life as a resident compare to what you're doing now as a um, attending? Yeah, so in, in neurosurgical residency, um, it is very busy. You know, the whole purpose of neurosurgical residency is to train you to be a neurosurgeon, right? So on the one side, um, there are certainly weeks and months where you will be working, you know, at, at the quote unquote maximum, which is, I believe, 80 to 88 hours a week, which is, when you think about it, two full-time jobs, right? So there are certain periods of time where you will be working that hard. You'll wake up at 4.30 or 5.30 to get to the hospital to see all the patients. You'll be doing surgery all day. Um, you'll stay to finish the surgery because it's, it's not shift work, right? So um, just because it's 6 p.m. doesn't mean that the person whose hands you were in doesn't still need care, right? Um, and so there are certain periods of time where you'll be working hard. There are other periods of time where it's lighter. And when I was at USC, there was an entire you know, six months where I, I came to work at nine and, and left at two, right? And had every weekend, almost every weekend off. So it's not all the time. Um, but I, I would be lying to you if I said that it, it wasn't hard. And on, on the one hand, it is very hard. But on the other hand, if you had to go see a neurosurgeon um, to operate on your brain or spine or take out a tumor or clip any aneurysm or, you know, have their fingers in, in your neural tissue, in a way, I, I would imagine that you would also want someone who has spent 10,000 hours, right, in, in learning their craft um, to be as safe as possible. As an attending, it's much more predictable, right? So as an attending, you know, I, um, for one, I have residents to do a lot of work, so I have a larger team. Um, my, my days are more predictable, like today. So, um, you know, I had a clinic today from eight to five, and then I have nothing else to do other than catching up on my own activities. Um, I have OR days where I can spend a long time in the OR, but it's much more predictable in, in that way. When you compare it across other specialties, I, I still work probably more or longer than, than some. So something on a complete opposite, say a dermatologist, right? A dermatologist will typically have their own clinic They'll work nine to four, right, in their office, maybe four days a week, and, you know, can, can name their own hours. Um, for me, it's not like that, right? There are certain days where I'm on call. So if someone comes into the emergency room with some type of emergency, even if it's at 11 p.m. at night, even if it's a Friday or Saturday and I have plans, that is a set day where I respond to that emergency, right? So I, I certainly probably work more hours than... Um, you know, some physicians, but it is a much more predictable life and, um, you know, much, much better than the finite time in residency training. So Dr. Pham, you briefly in there, you mentioned um, your non-medical activities uh, or personal uh, hobbies that you have. And indeed, you do have a lot of um, hobbies outside of medicine. 
in fact, some of the things that stand out the most on your Instagram are um, currently your passion for woodwork um, and your love for cars. Your, that's been something that um, we can tell means something for you for a long time. But walk us through what, they, what these hobbies, what these passions outside of medicine mean to you, you know, may, why maybe you need them and how they better you as a person and as a doctor. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that having hobbies or activities outside of medicine, um, I mean, it's not, by no means is it specific to neurosurgery. And I think it's important no matter whatever field of medicine you're in, and even even not just medicine as a physician, but even just healthcare in general, um, you know, on, on all, the, all types of care providers. You know, for me, my hobbies include the things that you have mentioned. You know, I, I recently found woodworking, which, you know, when I was growing up, my, my parents were refugees. We you know, so they were much more inclined into making sure that I was educated and, and didn't, didn't join a gang. And so um, I didn't have as, as much luxury to pursue um, some hobbies that I maybe would have gone into earlier. But, you know, word working, shooting pool, my passion for cars, um, fitness, um, no matter what it is, it, it's always going to be important, um, personally, I think, to have things outside of medicine. And I think it's just a way to decompress it's a way to um, disperse some of the tragedy that you may see in medicine and especially neurosurgery where not um, everything is always happy, right? There are a lot of bad outcomes. There are a lot of sad stories and um, you know, it is natural and normal to, to take that to heart, but it is also natural, normal and necessary to be able to process that. So you can come back for more, right? I mean, Neurosurgery is a career and it is a lifelong thing and having something outside to, um, you know, regenerate or rejuvenate your own um, uh, dedication to it, uh, to come back, to help other people is, is very, very important. I see. I see. That's, that's very important, Dr. Fram. And um, what's it called? Since you mentioned woodwork, um, just out of curiosity, like you, your hobbies tend to indulge like, you know, with the usage of your hands, basically, like, you know, uh, finger movements and everything like that. Is that, is that a coincidence or like, or is like, do you indulge in woodwork to prime yourself for neurosurgery? Is it like another, I guess, fun training activity? Uh, <laughs> I think it's, um, it's much, uh, um, it's, it's more, it's more of the former. It's more of the former. So, you know, I, I would say that when you're in medical school, the first division is whether you're, you're going to go into more of a, you know, a medical field where it's, um, it's purely cognitive or diagnostic, um, or a, um, a surgical field where there is a component of a procedural manual aspect. The people who tend to gravitate towards the procedural and surgical specialties are those who have found early on in life that they enjoy working with their hands. And this could be a variety of things. This could be because they played instruments. This is maybe because they were, were in woodshop or were a mechanic or built a variety of things. Maybe they were an engineer and an undergrad. Maybe they uh, grew up on a farm or in a rural area where they had to fix a lot of things and they derive enjoyment from it, right? So going into surgery in that way is a win-win situation because you get to do things with your hands that derive a great deal of enjoyment and you're going into medicine and helping people in that way. So I would say that the um, expression of my hobbies beyond that is more just a natural expression of, of enjoying things with my hands, you know? And so um, do I think that 
you know, specifically since you brought up word working, do I think that word working makes me a better surgeon? I, at my stage, I think to be honest, it's the opposite. I spent so much of my time training to be a surgeon that it's another, the other way around. I, by no means do I think I'm a master woodworker. I look at all these YouTube videos and there are really phenomenal people out there. But um, I, I think, you know, for me, it's just this very innate enjoyment and satisfaction in using tools and working with my hands and accomplishing a task. You know, in surgery, the task is to fix something or repair something or make someone better because you're doing something. In, in wordworking, it's the creation of something, right? And um, so it's not as different, except, um, you know, I would say that the stress levels are much lower because it's, you know, it's a piece of wood. And, uh, you know, if, if it's not perfect, then it's no big deal. Versus in surgery, it can be a very, very big deal. Effie, just a, just a little quick remark, but uh, Dr. Fim, I have to say you, you are pretty like, it, it, I don't know if you're just starting out with woodworking or not, but your most recent post with the, hex, um, the hexagon, would um, this you made it was, that was actually pretty phenomenal. I'm not gonna lie, the, the concept is really nice. I really, I, I do appreciate that. It's it's the the sixth thing I've I've ever made out of wood. I, you know, I've I've never owned a set of power tools. I've I've never you know, I've never even walked into the lumber section. So all of this really is just um, on the fly learning. So I appreciate that comment. Right, um, but yeah, going back to more about your Instagram page, Dr. Fam, it really is apparent from the page how much you love neurosurgery, how much it's absolutely what you want to do, you know, and just looking at the page, you know, me and Saeed, I mentioned before we were looking at it this uh, one time for, for a long time and we're just talking about it and we were like, wow, like this page makes me want to be a neurosurgeon. I never even considered the field before, my God, but because it's just that apparent how much it means to you. But I was wondering, as much as you love the field, what's, what's one most difficult part about being a neurosurgery? And has it ever made you doubt your career choice or your field choice? Um, I mean, I would say that the, the most difficult part are the, the tragedies, right? And by, by tragedies, I'll, I'll be a little bit more specific. You know, when, when people talk about neurosurgery, um, sometimes it, it encompasses things like, um, you know, bad outcomes or, you know, people don't get well. Um, and that's all true, right? Um, these quote unquote tragedies. As a neurosurgeon, you see them face to face, right? So you see, and you're talking with the mom whose 22 year old son is paralyzed from the neck down, right? 22, right? That means I'm sorry, he, he can't become anything and everything he wanted to be. He can't live alone. He can't be with his friends anymore. Um, you know, you're talking with the daughter whose whose mom, you know, suffered a stroke and she she's dying. And so, even though they just had dinner last night. Um, their entire lives are changed the next morning because she never woke up. And now I have to tell them that this isn't one of those things where she's going to get better. This is permanent, right? Um, your, your mom, for lack of a better way to say it, is, is going to die. Um, you know, these are the things that are, are still hard. Um, it's, I think, uh, quicker to process, but nevertheless, in, in my view, being a good neurosurgeon is helping to shepherd these people through the tragedies as best as possible um, and being a part of it in a way so that they're, they feel alone even amongst, you know, um, a number of family that, that are there. But at least this way, there's a bridge between 
their loved one whom they've known for years and years um, and someone in the hospital who um, is a little bit of a, a guide in some way, right? Um, I've never questioned the desire to be a part of that, you know, even, even in the worst parts of neurosurgery. However, and I, I did share this on, on one or two posts um, buried, you know, in my page somewhere, um, my experience in neurosurgery did turn me away from, from pediatric neurosurgery for this reason. You know, I was a resident uh, as a PGY3, so I was 29, um, and I was rotating through the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and um, a 14-year-old girl was admitted with new headaches, um, first time, right, so no one knows what's wrong with her, and we look at the scans before talking with the family, and she has a brain tumor, and it's, it's not a fatal one, but it was a pretty bad one. And um, you come in and she looks completely normal, right? So imagine your own niece or your younger sibling who's in their early teens, completely normal person. They tell me she's an A-plus student. She's a soccer star. You know, she's um, just the top of her class. And the thing is, is the parents are there and they have no idea what's going on. And we tell them, you know, and, and let them know that yeah, she has a brain tumor and this and that. But I know, right, I know just looking at the scan and the type of tumor it's going to be, her life is going to change. She's going to need surgery. She's going to need chemotherapy. She's going to need radiation. She's going to be worse, no matter all the efforts, because that's just what this tumor does. And just being in that room, and although no one can predict the future, I mean, it's one of those things that's a given, knowing that she's going to go from this top of her class 14 year old to just, you know, someplace where she never imagined her life would be was, was heartbreaking for me. And for me, that was the limit. You know, I, I can do this for 20 year olds. I can do this for 40 year olds, 80 year olds, but to look at essentially a child um, that was too much. And so I would say that it didn't turn me from neurosurgery, um, but it did turn me from pediatric neurosurgery. And that's, that's definitely what changed my mind. Subfield. Definitely, Dr. Pham. And um, honestly, um, what's it called? Somebody told me nobody really essentially goes to a doctor because like, you know, they're, they're feeling okay. It's just they go to a doctor when they're feeling sick. And it's a, it's a very vulnerable time, honestly, uh, for the patients. And the thing is, it's like neurosurgeons, I feel like our neurosurgery is very like astro future oriented you you know their medical histories and you're trying to change the outcome of what their future is going to be like you know trying to as you said like trying to either repair or make them better but when you are interacting with the patients you know all this about their medical history and what can be their future and sometimes it's inevitably death which is very sad to say but how do you stay in the present and actively listen to the patients when you know all these things that are going on? Um, I mean, I think, um, I don't think that's a real uh, issue anymore. I, I do understand where you're coming from. And I think that could be a perspective when you're a medical pre-med or, or even a medical student, when you're starting to learn these things and you know, you're, you're looking at a person where, um, just like you said, you, you can foreshadow what 90% of that outcome is. 
But, um, you know, listening to people in the clinic or at the bedside, it's no different than, than talking right now. You know, I mean, there's um, staying in the moment is staying in the moment regardless. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it doesn't change whether I look at a scan and I know that they have a, an inoperable or incurable brain tumor versus I look at a scan and they have something um, completely benign, right? Um, every person's experience with disease and um, sickness is going to be completely different. And listening to them is, in a way, honoring their, their experience. Um, so regardless of what I know, um, it's always important to give people time to express what they know and what they're experiencing. So it absolutely doesn't change regardless of what I see or what I think and predict could likely happen either way. So Dr. Pham, I just wanted to ask real quick. Um, I don't know a lot of neurosurgeons, but, and I don't know if this is true for all neurosurgeons, but as far as I can tell, you know, the neurosurgeons I've encountered um, through my readings, through books and whatnot, have very philosophical tendencies and a step above are able to articulate these thoughts very well. For example, Dr. Um, Paul Kalanithi, uh, he wrote a beautiful book, When Breath Becomes Air. Um, and even yourself, you know, with your journal posts on Instagram, uh, they're very moving and they're very deep. So how do you think this trait ties into your life as a neurosurgeon, you know, a position where you can explore what life is at the doorstep of death? And, and furthermore, how's this experience of exploring, you know, life and death and that barrier in between How's that been for you? Like, you know, have you reached any conclusions, any, any revelations of any sort? Yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think it's, um, although it's tempting to imagine or think that because neurosurgeons deal with life and death all the time, it makes them more philosophical. Um, I know plenty of neurosurgeons who are not, not philosophical at all. So I think it's the philosophers that end up going into the different fields. And, you know, just like you said, Paul Kalanithi was a wonderful writer. He used to write for the New York Times. And I, I read a few of his pieces before he passed. Henry Marsh is a fantastic writer. Um, but you, you look, and in the medical profession, there are a lot of phenomenal writers as well. Atul Gawande is a general surgeon, um, also a, a, a fantastic writer. And for me, I, I trace back my... Um, I guess maybe my ability to express um, thoughts and words and ideas um, earlier on, you know, I mean, in, I think in middle school, you know, in literature class, like we used to have these like essay competitions and I, I didn't do poorly, you know, I did fine. My, my grandfather was a, a poet. My, my mother can recite speeches from memory. So there is something innate and I enjoyed literature in college. Right. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's those types of people that come first who just end up going into neurosurgery. Um, I, I do value the ability to express thoughts and ideas. And I think in medical school with a lot of the, uh, you know, study groups that we were part of, being able to express concepts differently was very valuable. And I think that made me a fairly effective um, tutor for some in trying to understand concepts. Um, nowadays, especially in dealing with a lot of life and death, has it made me more, you know, philosophical or thoughtful in, in some way? I don't think it's made me more so. Um, I think it's definitely filled in the substance of, 
what we all wonder, you know, whether or not you're a neurosurgeon, whether or not you're in medicine, people wonder about life and death. People wonder about the meaning of life. People wonder about, you know, uh, a fulfilling one, right? And um, people wonder about the best ways to contribute or make make this life, quote unquote, worthwhile, whether that's to your your friends and family, your community, to humanity in general, right? Um, I think everyone wonders that regardless. And I think for me, being on the doorstep for some people um, as they go from life to death has made those thoughts and ideas more poignant. Um, but I think, you know, for, for those of us who wonder that already, um, I think you will continue to wonder that no matter what field you go into. Absolutely. So Dr. Pham, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences on this truly very special episode. It's a special episode, not only for the audience, but also for us. Um, you know, I was telling Saeed the other day, it's not every day that you get to talk to someone that's not only so accomplished, but so, so willing and so kind in their efforts to, to share um, what it is that they have to offer their experiences. And, and, you know, there's something to be said about the sort of mold of mentoring that has become the norm uh, for, for the medical journey, because as pre-meds, we usually look to medical students for advice because they're at the next most obvious step ahead of us. But what we really want to push our listeners to do is to reach out not only to medical students, but also to physicians for advice. You see, the road to medicine is long and trying, but these physicians have gone through all of it. And, you know, as we've seen today with you, they have so much experience, both personal and professional, that they're just so eager to share. And to everyone listening, if you'd like to hear more about Dr. Pham's journey, give his Instagram page at MartinPhamMD. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-H-A-M-M-D, a look. On it, he's posted some beautifully written excerpts from the journal he kept throughout his medical school and residency journey. Uh, Said and I read these small excerpts and we were thoroughly blown away. So do give that a look. And thank you so much, Dr. Pham, for joining us today. And listeners, if you'd like to hear more episodes like this from us, you can find us on our website, stonychibis.wix.com. And you can also find us on our Spotify under Chai with the Pre-Med Guys. As always, thank you for tuning in. And until the next cup of chai. So I just wait. I just wait. So I just wait. I know that you can fly, but you don't really feel good. Hello, fellow chai enthusiast. This is a specialized message to thank you for tuning into our last special holiday season episode. If you're listening to this, this episode has now come to an end and your cup of chai is empty as well. A little insider knowledge, just for you guys. Every step of making this episode involves a cup of chai. Sending emails to our guests, take a cup of chai. Writing a treatment for an episode, a cup of chai. And especially when we record our episode, we must have a cup of chai. So as you can see, we run through our chai mix, our chai patti, really quick. So if you can help us out by subscribing to us on Apple Podcast and Spotify, and follow us on Instagram under Chai Pies Podcast, we can keep running through our fair share of cup of chais for our episodes. Especially in the spirit of the holidays, if you DM us that we're the best pre-med podcast in Stony Brook, we'll give you a personalized shout out for making it this far. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you to Drestorm for giving us this amazing outro, which you can hear more from on Spotify under D-R-E-I-S-T-O-R-M. Until then, 
see you for the next cup of chai. Mm -hmm.